Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Oliver Jones, and my able co-host, Ed Stevens. This conversation is with Ed Klinger. Ed is the founder of Flock, a UK government and Silicon Valley-backed insurtech platform disrupting the insurance industry. Their first product caters to the $100 billion drone market. We learn how Ed's academic background in engineering and then AI and government policy set him on this path and allowed him to meet Elon Musk along the way. We talk about the current and future applications of drones and what they might mean for the future of our cities and our world. So without further ado, we bring you Ed Klinger. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast. We're here today with Ed Klinger, uh, founder of Flock, drone insurance tech company. Um, I gather you've just come from doing a talk today about the golden era of drones. Um, so we were delighted to have you on board. Um, just to sort of dig in, we'd love to know a bit about your academic background leading up to getting into the drone and insurance industry, because obviously it's a, it's a hell of a place to get into. Um, so yeah, what, what was your background? Sure, so first, Thanks for having me, guys. Good to be here. Um, my background is actually predominantly academic. So I spent four years at Oxford doing an MEng um, in engineering, so general engineering science at Oxford at Wadham College. Um, I did a master's in biomedical engineering, so that was my fourth year focus for my master's thesis. And uh, specifically, I was looking at brain cancer technologies, so that was my real focus for the last year of my, of my four-year studies there. I worked at the IBME, the Biomedical Institute, to build a relatively new high-tech piece of uh, equipment that could use high-intensity focused ultrasound to explode brain tumours. Um, basically, if you focus sound on a single point, lots of energy concentrates at that point and you can heat things up quite quickly. And if you can heat that thing up and that thing happens to be a brain tumour and you can do that through a hole in the skull, then you can kill the tumour without damaging the brain around it. So that was my focus whilst I was at Oxford. I became really interested in entrepreneurship whilst I was there and actually wanted to commercialize the technology that I'd built during my master's. So became interested in understanding how quickly we could get that kind of technology to market. After digging in and kind of talking with professors there and, and looking into how to commercialize healthcare tech, it looked like it was gonna be you know nine to 12 years to actually bring this kind of technology um, to the commercial space, which I found frustrating and confusing. So started getting really interested in policy around science and engineering and technology because that's what really is the deciding factor in how quickly you can bring a piece of tech to market is the regulatory framework around that tech. So decided to go and do a master's at Cambridge called Technology Policy, which is at the Judge Business School. It straddles the business school and the engineering department. So it focuses on, well, you can go into detail in pretty much anything you want in that master's, which was why it was so great. I thought I was going to get into the healthcare space and understand how we commercialize healthcare tech. But whilst I was there, I became really, really interested in artificial intelligence, which is one of the really hot topics, mm. especially at Cambridge University. It's one of the, the forefronts of AI at the moment, uh, Edinburgh and Cambridge. So whilst looking into AI, I became especially interested in a few of the bespoke applications of AI. So that's drones, autonomous vehicles and specifically in the risks associated with those specific areas. Published a couple of papers on the risks involved in autonomous driving and autonomous drone flying. And in one of those papers, I actually suggested that there's a real need that if we're gonna have 
in the future millions of drones undertaking billions of flights, which is actually not as far off as you might think, we need a very comprehensive data-driven risk analysis tool that can actually help us to quantify the risks involved in drone flights, but crucially minimize the risks involved in drone flights. So that's what I proposed in one of my thesis papers whilst I was at the business school at Cambridge. By chance, I was introduced to someone who had built the very first version of the kind of software or platform that I had proposed. That was a guy called Anton, and he is actually the founder of Flock. I then joined him, and together we became founder and CEO. It's funny, we did an interview recently um, with a company from Imperial called Humanizing Autonomy, and it does seem that at the heart of what they're trying to create, which is um, self-driving cars that can understand human emotion, is policy and regulation, and the, the founders um, sort of built up their proposition around that as well. Um, so w when you got together with Anton, um, how, how do you go from, from that idea and his software to actually starting to, to move that forward? Because it's a big ambition and clearly for students, you know, coming out, it, it's not like you have all the commercial relationships, not like you've got the contacts at Boeing for 24 years or something to, to leverage. So. Yeah, true. Um, so yeah, the, the, the first few months of starting Flock were an insane journey, looking back on them. So Anton and I, first things first, we, we quit our respective jobs. So I was actually supposed to be working in private equity in London and New York. I quit that job a week before I was due to start. Anton had actually started another tech company, so he had some experience as a founder in the tech space. He decided to quit that job, and together we jumped into Flock. When, when, he, sorry, when he built the software, was it a project while he was at Cambridge? So he was at, Anton was actually at Imperial College okay. London at the Data Science Institute, and he, he built the software as part of his thesis project, right. correct? So it was, a, it was a project that he was undertaking when he was there. He had actually won a very small grant from Innovate UK that he had piled into that project and was working with a um, professor of artificial intelligence who was based at the Data Science Institute. So together, they built the very first version of this software. It's not a academic spin-out, though. Technically, the software is fully owned by Flock. Um, mm -hmm. So retain, we retained the IP, which is quite crucial looking back on it. Um, the, the first few months were basically Anton and myself in, you know, effectively in a small startup kind of hub called Geovation Hub, mm -hmm. um, which is a hot desking area where we could just have a free desk in our laptops, trying to figure out how we take a relatively complex idea, this kind of real-time risk analysis technology, and we were trying to figure out how we could implement that into the drone ecosystem, which back then, this was mid-2016, so things like Amazon Air, this was this stuff was just coming to light. Um, so it was at the very, very early days of the big announcements in the drone space. DJI was definitely a fully large, established company, but there were, you know, it was it was before drones were in the news all the time. So we were speaking with investors and we were getting up on stages and talking about this kind of stuff and just putting ourselves out there really and saying, look, we've got this cool idea. We think it can go somewhere in the risk analysis space. We think it can actually be a core piece of the drone ecosystem. As that ecosystem grows, we don't necessarily know exactly how that's going to happen, mm -hmm. but we've got strong backgrounds. We've got a nice piece of tech and there seems to be a lot of interest in this from the industry generally. What happened was we got some great investors on board quite early who really backed the vision of, of this real-time risk analysis tech playing a crucial role. And then we went out to the market and decided how to commercialize this stuff. By virtue of being in London, which has very quickly become the insurtech hub globally, really. I mean, London's probably up there, New York's up there. 
um, potentially Silicon Valley in terms of the amount of innovation that's taking place in the insurance space, specifically with deep tech and, and tech generally, we were exposed to all of the large insurers watching us on stage, coming along to our events, coming into our office and understanding what our technology did. It was through that massive exposure to the insurance industry by virtue of being in London that we realized we can actually commercialize this tech in the insurance space. We built a system that allowed you to quantify the risk of a drone flight in real time. That's effectively what Flock does. Mm -hmm. That was the initial proposal and project that we commercialized. If you can quantify risk, then you can price risk. Right, you convert that quantified risk metric into a price. And so so began the one-year process of speaking with insurers, understanding their needs, and ultimately partnering with one of them, Allianz, to bring a product to market for the drone industry, which is what we did. Why hadn't um, insurers decided upon this way of um, you know, quoting insurance before? Because surely it's not the, your technology doesn't necessarily have to be applied in the drone space. You can do real-time insurance for in any for any number of applications. So, so why is it that they hadn't looked into it before? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So, th- there are lots of answers to that question. The first, most obvious answer is that insurance companies aren't particularly innovative, mm. um, and they're not particularly good at building technology, specifically software platforms that delight the customer. Anyone who's ever bought insurance can can vouch <laughs> for that. Um, so, that that's the first and most obvious reason. And, and there are a number of reasons as to why that reason exists. They're, they're old, they're slow, they don't have a culture of innovation, they don't hire the best developers or, or designers. Um, another, another thing is that the, the pay-as-you-go insurance space is actually relatively new. So there are a few companies popping up in the automotive space, even in the aviation space now, there are a few pay-as-you-go drone insurance companies. But it's, you know, it's only in the last year, two years that these these things are coming to light. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are a number of reasons for that as well. The technology required to actually build these things is quite complicated. There are regulatory and legal issues involved in there, so everything has to be totally ship-shape. And when you introduce risk analysis into the entire equation, things get much more complicated. The reason you have to introduce risk analysis into the the equation in the drone industry is because there are dramatically different risk profiles between flights. Mm -hmm. So some flights are incredibly low risk, some flights are incredibly high risk. If you simply offer a blanket quote for an hour to every single type of pilot, you're you're wildly off the mark, and that leads to a whole litany of problems for the insurers. What are, give me some examples of risks. Are there exciting? Mm-hmm. I imagine there's some quite amusing risks involved with flying <laughs> drones. So, okay, as being so, shot out the sky by an ang- a disgruntled <laughs> farmer, one of them. <laughs> we don't have data sets for that. <laughs> I, so it, it might be worth giving a bit of context as to what the product actually is. Yeah. So, so yep. anyone listening kind of understands. So what we've built is basically a pay-as-you-fly drone insurance app. As a pilot, as a commercial drone pilot or as a recreational drone pilot who's flying for fun, you download the app. You enter a few details about yourself, you choose your drone from a list of all of our drones, and then you go and fly. And when you fly, you just click a button that says, I want to insure my flight. At that moment, we price the flight for the next hour or two hours or four hours, whatever you choose, based on the exact conditions of your surroundings. Mm -hmm. So we'll say things like, okay, is it windy? Is it rainy? Is there good visibility? Um, How will your drone perform in these conditions? Some drones are very good in high winds. Some drones are awful in high winds. So we, we reconcile those data sets. Um, so that's hyper-local weather, but then we also bring in location data as well. Are you flying near a school or an airport is a particularly bad one? Mm-hmm. Are you flying near a prison or a hospital or a busy bus shelter? 
And we've built the algorithms that basically ingest this data and convert that into a meaningful risk metric, right? So if you're flying near a school at 9 a.m. on a, a day where it's pissing with rain and uh, high wind, and you're using a heavy drone that's not particularly good in wind or rain, you're gonna have the, the highest possible price, right? We can go one step further and actually block the flight completely and not offer insurance for the flight. Mm. So this is what we mean when we say kind of hyper-local micro-duration insurance policies that are ultra-targeted to the specific needs of the individual at the time of flight. That's what we think the future of insurance looks like. Yes. Um, not just drone insurance. You know, we've launched with drone insurance, but that's what that's what insurance can become. It can become seamless. It can become hyper-targeted, exactly what you need when you need it. Rather than a hindrance, it can almost enable industries mm. to grow. And that's that's really our, our broader vision, but we can talk about that in a bit. Um, I mean, so, the interface is amazing. I, I watched one of your videos. It looks really good, and you can drag a circle um, of your drone flight radius. And if it starts to go over buildings, immediately the price the price will recalculate. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess the drone pilot can can just move it around. It, it's a really nice user interface. Book their insurance, and away they go. And I think it's also making them aware of risks because you you might be an amateur enthusiast photographer who doesn't actually think about the consequences of crashing into a school uh, should the wind pick up, or, or you could be flying it and then the conditions start changing. So I think it probably also informs decisions for the pilots as well. Exactly right. And, and one of the things that, that we are in quite a uniquely privileged position as an insurance company effectively to do is that we can help pilots to reduce their risk, but we can actually incentivize them to reduce their risk. So we're a safety app, you know, mm. we'll, we will flag up, hey, watch out, it's raining, it's windy, you're flying near a school. We can flag up these risks, which often pilots would just ignore if they saw it on an app. But we can actually say to them, if you fly 50 meters to your left instead, you will save money on your insurance. Awesome. Right, so we link risk and cost. And so we have a direct incentive mechanism to actually, for not force, but encourage good behavior. And when you've got that, you can start to then retrospectively look back and say, okay, well, we've sold, you know, we've, we're at the point now where we've got thousands of customers, we've sold thousands of flights. We can look back and say, well, did our influencing pricing actually make any difference and it turns out that it does so we can see that pilots are using our application are deliberately replanning their flights by time and by location to minimize their risk so we are actually in a small way making the world a safer place and, and i guess in the future when i mean presumably the bet you've made is that drones will become increasingly omnipresent um so presumably that we'll come on to talking about the safety of, of cities and what our cities will look like in the future in a bit. Um, but that's kind of software can help uh, generate the policies which are going to govern the way drones are allowed to navigate London, for example. Yeah, that's that's right. And I'm, I'm hesitant to say that that's exactly how things are going to go, that mm. our software will sure. become the de facto safety software, you know, mandated by government. In fact, I could probably confidently tell you that's not the way things go, because that's not how governments work. But, you know, just this morning, I was talking at the Royal Aeronautical Society on specifically the issue of beyond visual line of sight drone Yeah, flights. which was fascinating. I didn't think about that. I'd never heard of the term before. Yeah, BVLOS is, yep. is the acronym that's Tell me about used. it. What is it? You'll start hearing it more and more, I think, um, over <laughs> I like the next it already. five years. <laughs> so right now, if you want to fly a drone, and, and let's talk about the commercial drone space. I, I'm, yep. you know, This is much more interesting in the context of the Amazons, the Verizons, the Googles, who are doing you know serious commercial flights. Well, could, we, could we take a step back and, sure. and 
and give the use cases because you've obviously got amateur photographers and I don't want anybody to think that's what we're talking about because it's a tiny use case. What kind of commercial, well, in 2016, what was there and what's it becoming now? So, yeah, good question. So, look, why don't I give data from our app, right? So the Perfect. majority of pilots on our application, commercial pilots, are doing commercial photography missions of industrial sites or of properties, often of farmland, and they're often taking land surveys or doing 3D scans, okay? So that's actually the majority of the pilots in the UK that are using this thing. We're starting, and that was the case in 2016, but what we're starting to see is this trend towards the enterprise use case for drones. So these are much larger companies with upwards of kind of 50 or 100 drones. And we're gonna see a whole range of use cases for these things, whether that's communication, whether that's much more large scale surveys, we're starting to see deliveries being done. And really, this, we're deliveries. In the, we're in the early stages of deliveries, but it is happening. So Amazon are already delivering packages to people's houses. And it's, it's small scale stuff, but we can look abroad to see what this thing will look like in a few years time. I was recently in uh, Beijing, talking with a few of the drone manufacturers and, and service companies out there. There's a company called JD.com out in China. It's kind of like a Chinese Amazon equivalent. They've got 350 million active customers, which is quite a nice metric when you're assessing the size of an opportunity, which is what we were doing out there. Um, and, and you know, I, I, I talk quite openly about this because it was totally remarkable and they're relatively open about it. There was actually a piece written in The Economist about it recently, which is that JD.com are now using relatively large drones to deliver relatively large packages directly to people's houses in four different provinces in China. And they're hoping to expand that to 40 provinces, or I think that's what they said, or 40 cities wow. in the next couple of years. And they're not delivering you know, popcorn, they're delivering laptops with these things. So that, that paints a bit of a roadmap as to what the drone space can look like down the line. Is that not a scary proposition? I mean, I've, I've, I've been on the beach when there's been a kid with a drone and I don't get creeped out by it, but I understand that there's some people could get creeped out, but also just it's just annoying. The noise is incredibly annoying. It's like the worst wasp you could imagine. <laughs> but, but these big um, drones, do they, are they quadcopters? There's a whole range. They, they were using fixed wing out in, in China actually, and a combination of the two. Because in my head, I have the, the military drones as one example, and then I have quadcopters, and I can't picture necessarily what the, the scale There is a satisfying in-between. But presumably, because of the way that they work, they have to make a noise. There's no silencer for them. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is actually a common complaint, and the common question that's asked is, to what extent will these things cause nuisance and disruption to privacy, to well-being? And the debate rages on. I think there's no, there's no satisfying answer just yet. It's a similar debate to the driverless car debate, right? We have to wait for civil society to come to understand these technologies and, and technologists, regulators and civil society has to come together or have to come together but can to you actually understand. The, the bylanes for them based on the, the data you're getting from your app, for instance, because if you can go through an area of, of land, because you're not paying, I think the biggest advantage of drones, you're not paying man hours. It's, it's autonomous, so if you can get it to, to take an extra half an hour and maybe to go um, in a non-residential areas, could, could you be responsible for so helping there, chart that? There are a number of solutions that have been suggested. Um, UTM is one of the kind of popular concepts of them at the minute, which is unmanned aerial vehicle traffic management, basically. Um, 
it's the idea that there will be some kind of centralised system. Today at the Royal Aeronautical Society, it was described as Skynet, which will monitor uh, aerial, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles in their millions when these things are completely, you know, when they've proliferated to the extent that we can see them in the sky every single day. It's unclear exactly how this thing is going to go. It's unclear whether, you know, what the role of the regulators will be here, whether one company will have some kind of data monopoly over, over drones generally. Um, and there's a, a raging debate about this as well. How up to date was the, the talk about regulation at university? Because I think there was clearly an inroads for you to come into the insurance industry because you were dealing with the regulation and AI side of things, whereas you say the incumbents were just protecting their existing business interests. But how on top of these questions do you feel that we are in the regulatory space? Because there's a lot of fear over AI getting away or, or us not catching it in time before we kind of let things commercial interests take you know let's say that company in china it's like the person responsible for all that traffic is exceptionally powerful mm. and that could be private enterprise um so do you, do you think we're doing a good job of staying in touch with the important uh, thing that's a, that's a good question actually um so look i'll speak from our experience with the regulators we launched europe's first micro duration insurance product in the aviation space we're, we're working in two very heavily regulated industries, insurance and aviation. These things generally don't evolve at rapid pace. They haven't done for the last 100 years. But now suddenly you've got a bunch of startups, a bunch of big corporates coming out with quite mind-blowing technology at a really, really rapid pace. What I'm starting to see is that the regulators have actually fallen behind. Mm. So technology is moving faster than the regulators know how to deal with we went through a very similar situation to what many other startups have gone through, which is that we wanted to launch a piece of technology, the Flock Cover app, which would allow for a dramatic departure from the way that things have traditionally been done. Normally you buy insurance for a year and then you, you buy again a year later. We wanted to sell it per hour at the specific instance of a flight. Now, what that meant was that the regulators had to deal with a relatively confusing transition. They'd never experienced it before. They didn't know how to deal with it. So we ended up going through a six-month process with the aviation regulators in the UK, the Civil Aviation Authority, who didn't like that this young kind of tech startup had come along with a dramatically different proposition to what they were used to. And they just saw us as, you know, those app guys who want to do things a bit differently. And they were moving at the regulated timescale. But obviously we were VC funded. Mm. We've got, you know, targets that we're, we're really keen to hit. And we're working on timescales of days when they're working on timescales of years. So that, that six month period whereby they were saying, no, this isn't, this isn't kosher was super, super stressful for us. Yep. But obviously we worked through it and eventually they came around to our way of thinking. So I think the big challenge when it comes to regulation and regulators staying on top of technology is making sure that there's as much and as high quality communication taking place between the technologists and the regulators and also academia, this kind of triple helix model of innovation whereby these three things come together and have great communication and work through case studies and, and set best practice as quickly as possible and then keep a very close finger on the pulse to see if things are working. And this is where regulatory sandboxes, for example, come in. So that's a regulatory sandbox run by the FCA specifically for insure tech propositions. We're not a part of it. But what it allows for is for the rapid testing and iteration of ideas and then the retrospective analysis of whether those ideas worked. And that, that sandbox is doing brilliant, brilliant things. Really, really great innovation is coming out of that sandbox as a result of regulators working closely with industry. Because you could be incredibly powerful. Um, 
let's say there were systems in place, more drones come out and there's just more drone flights and you need, somebody needs to check that these drones are insured because flying uninsured is risky. You can't keep a track mm. on that. So it's, it's also illegal for it's commercial illegal. pilots. But for then, commercial pilots. But then how, how it's policed is interesting. So could there be a situation where the drone will broadcast that it has embedded within it an insurance policy and therefore if a drone flies over a certain territory something could scan for whether it's beeping out this insurance signal you then become i guess the 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 fail safe for the the policy based on that you would ensure something to do something that is going to be immoral or fly out of its flight lane um would, would drones um yeah could you could you have insurance on them that is broadcast to some technology that can scan I'm, I'm just glad you didn't say on the blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> Not on the blockchain. Um, no, so it, it's a good point. I, I think broadcasting insurance signals, I mean, let's take it one step above, um, because I think there's a bigger problem here, which is actually managing these these things as hardware generally you're going to have millions of these things flying over cities it's not just a case of oh a drone's going over is it insured it's more a case of is there a drone going over and why and who does it belong to Mm -hmm. and who's in charge of it from a safety case perspective and that's really the first problem that we're solving not flock when i say we i mean we as a society there are a number of companies startups and much larger organizations organizations like google and nasa are working on this how do we build this information layer that allows drones as a piece of hardware to broadcast their precise location and ideally their flight plan so that we don't know just where they've been and where they are but also where they're going to be next and then how do we ultimately deconflict these things and stop them from crashing into each other crashing into obstacles on the ground people on the ground that's the big challenge we have to solve first is it a legitimate concern that uh, terrorist organizations could use drones to drop unpleasant powders on us yeah, and worse than just unpleasant powders, probably. I, it's already happened. Um, mm. Terrorists have already used drones on a number of instances to cause total mayhem and death. Um, so yes, it is a concern. There are there are a few ways of dealing with that concern. Um, there are there are anti-drone defense mechanisms already in place. Around. I want one. <laughs> <laughs> you can get them. <laughs> I can point you in the right direction. For the no, beach. I, I, I need one for the beach. <laughs> how do those operate? Because I was thinking about this before the episode, you can't just shoot a drone out of the sky, obviously, because if it hits somebody's house, it's clearly dangerous. So how do they work? They're a range. Um, so funnily enough, you can shoot a drone out of the sky. Um, right. In the US, they used a, a Patriot missile that cost $3 million to shoot. A, a, we think it was a DJI out of the sky that probably cost a few hundred dollars. Um, so that, <laughs> That's that, the American way. That, that is the American way. Why? Where was it? Um, I, I, I don't have the details. Right. I will send you the... Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a hilarious news article. Um, but then there, then there are much more sensible things you can do. So, for example, DJI is, is the largest drone manufacturer. We, we believe they have around 75 to 80% of the market globally, which, mm. is, which is a truly monstrous monopoly. DJI are aware of this problem, and they work quite closely, actually, with a range of stakeholders from... Uh, startups building technology and data platforms all the way through to governments around the world to build dynamic geofences into their drone software. So what I mean when I say dynamic geofences is, you know, if you fly this thing into a space where it should not be, 
this thing will shut off and it will return to home. So return to home is just a relatively standard function that's built into basically every modern drone, mm. which allows that drone to understand that it's in a place where it shouldn't be. It goes up to a certain height and it returns back to the to the place where it took off from. So it, th this isn't yet cracked. Um, DJI and many other drone manufacturers are working on this and they're embedding data platforms into their own platforms so that they can make sure that it works well. Mm. And they're working with governments to understand what these dynamic where these dynamic geofences should be established Established, um, but that, that's a much more intelligent way of handling these issues than um, you know shooting a drone out of the sky with a Patriot missile, although not as fun. No, because <laughs> it seems that there's split use cases in my head at the moment. So when I was researching for this podcast, um, I think it's very easy to see the rural applications in countries. Well, I think was quite interesting in countries that are not that developed because they have the, the capacity, like you said, in China, to to build an infrastructure that supports drone deliveries. And they can have drop-off points and yeah, actually absolutely. engineer their, their new towns and cities with yeah. that in mind. And they can leapfrog um, they can. infrastructure, which will be considered outdated. I mean, look at Zipline. They're, they're doing some amazing things out in Rwanda, for example. They're doing drug deliveries and blood deliveries beyond visual line of sight. Um, they've raised a bunch of cash. They've got the world's best engineers working on these problems. And they're actually making a, a, an impact on people's lives. And you may not even need to build roads to some of those areas now. It won't serve any any meaningful purpose. So Are they a social enterprise or commercial? Zipline? Yeah. Ooh. I don't know. It doesn't matter, I just interested. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where their what their profit motives are. Yeah. It's always tough when you're delivering medical aid to know how much <laughs> margin you can <laughs> add, add on top. Yeah, in Africa. Yeah, yeah I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the really worst people on earth. Um to, to try and profit monger out of that, I think. Um you brought up the visual line of sight thing, uh, which was your talk today. So I think we gave it some context, but you suggest that's a big turning point for the next iteration? Yeah, I think that, you know, if someone says, what are the major developments that are going to take place in the drone industry in the next X years? One of the big challenges right now that, that the drone industry globally is facing is how do we deal with beyond visual line of sight? So what I mean by that is in the UK, visual line of sight is 500 metres. How do we go beyond that? Because if you're delivering packages to people's homes, if you're undertaking surveillance missions, you don't want to be limited to a radius of 500 meters. The problem is if you're beyond visual line of sight, you really have to enter the realm of reliable software platforms that can basically pilot these things themselves if necessary, because you have no control over where this thing is to the extent that you're, you're using the onboard camera system, but really you want a coherent, holistic data platform that can manage and ultimately control these things in real time. So just for the, the drone novice, at the moment, you can fly at visual line of sight is when you can see and you've got 500 meters. Exactly. But beyond that, there's a screen that you can see and you're presumably in your remote control that you then, like a computer game. Well, Well, right now you're actually just not allowed to fly a drone beyond visual line of right. sight. That's, that's, the, that's the law right now in the UK, but that will change. And there are some commercial enterprises who have exemptions which allow them to do that. What my presentation this morning was actually on was how we would use the Flock cover app hmm. to ensure beyond visual line of sight flights. The way that we would do that is by saying, okay, let's say you wanna fly from A to B and those two points are three miles apart. You don't need to be able to see from A to B to be able to extract data from our application. Our, our application is effectively a mapping application that pulls information from various sources and maps risks geospatially or geographically um, and temporally, so relating to time. So if you were flying from A to B, we would know where you would be at any given point along that journey or from along those waypoints. Mm. And we would be able to say, okay, are you, are you flying over any of the risks that we identify in the app? 
schools, prisons, hospitals, and so on. What are the hyperlocal weather conditions all the way along your route? And then we can actually quantify the risk of that route. Things get really interesting when you then optimize the risk of that route. So when you actually start to dynamically reroute the drone in real time to avoid risks as and when they occur. And make the, the ride cheaper for the pilot. Exactly, which is what I presented today. How we would actually incentivize for that auto rerouting financially by rewarding people with cheaper insurance. So could you supply an API package that allowed um, that to be served up to the drone in, in real time versus them just going point, point to point? And the point I just thought, so the medical delivery company, I assume you have to zip go- Zipline. Zipline. You have to go more than 500 meters. So are other countries not playing by this de facto standard? Yeah, so there are a few countries who are really leading the way in terms of taking proactive regulatory measures to allow the drone industry to thrive. Rwanda is actually one of them. The UK is actually one of them. The Civil Aviation Authority here are, are actually pretty good at this. They listen to companies and they say, if you can make a good safety case, if you can demonstrate that you're doing these things, these flights safely, you can fly beyond visual line of sight. Then you have to go through the process of getting an exemption. Um, so it's, it's starting to happen. It's starting to happen. Um, and where would the line be drawn? Um, let's say Ollie and I have a drone delivery company and we're delivering <laughs> packages, mm-hmm. but it's also picking up other data that it seems it decides is useful. Let's say it's got computer vision on it and it's scanning its environment. But what stops me then using that information for any other purpose that's not specifically what my company said it was going to set out to do? I, do, I can't think of the use case, but you know, you might, you're, you're not having to fly over, which you have the ability to do image scan and at that point, I can gather any image I want, especially beyond 500 meters. I can just send it over any urban conurbation I want and, and with the intent that I'm actually gathering different information that I'm not declaring that I am. Seeing yeah, Ollie on the beach. Ollie on the beach. Just. You're only human. <laughs> I, I mean, you would still have to be abiding by all data privacy acts and laws. Mm. So I'm, I'm no expert on exactly what those are specifically relating to beyond visual line of sight flights. Yeah. Um, no, it's a very good question. I think about this a lot. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to write that one down. But you think it's going to be a big stepwise change, this new... And actually, so you, you've talked about it. Are they going to go for it as subject to you being able to present a good enough use case? Or so, do you think... Uh, look, it's going to happen, right. but regulators move slowly. Um, when I say move slowly, I mean not compared to the timescales that technology companies move at. Mm-hmm. So you'll hear a lot of press about it in the next few years. You'll hear a lot of tech companies talking about how amazing their innovations are in this space and what they're going to do with them. The truth is that they are beholden to the regulator entirely. Um, and when they when they decide not to be beholden to the regulator and to ask for forgiveness rather than permission, you start you you know you encounter problems, as has happened with various tech companies over the last few years, mm-hmm. who I shan't name. So you've described quite a few, um, I guess, regulatory contingencies on the the upward uh, trajectory to the golden era of, of drones. Um, but presumably there were far more contingencies whenever it was three years ago, four years ago, that you approached investors for the first time with, I guess, without commercial traction. Obviously, you had some software and your, your background, but I, I imagine you didn't have any commercial traction. So how did you how did you pitch it to them? Yeah, so... When we first started pitching for funding, it's worth noting that at that point I'd never raised cash as an entrepreneur, mm. right? So this was relatively new to me. My my mentality around this was basically seek advice when possible and make a loud noise about what we're doing because we were building something that was genuinely quite new and unique and revolutionary and so on. We believed it had quite big implications for a growing industry. 
um, and we enjoyed talking about it. So all mm. of those things just led to us basically going out and saying, okay, let's get on stage, let's ask people for interesting introductions, let's put things online and see what comes back. So that was our approach. We did that and by by a combination of luck and knowing the right people, we ended up meeting some great investors who took interest. We didn't have any commercial traction whatsoever at this point. We hadn't even launched a product. We just had a semi-working prototype that looked shoddy, <laughs> but that could demonstrate the implications for the technology going forward. And we had a business plan as to how we would start commercializing this tech. So we went out, we met some great investors, and they, they took a punt based on the founding team, based on the traction that we had so far, which was basically a couple of thesis papers, a semi-working prototype, which is, which is you know, that's okay for a very early stage company with two people uh, working with no salary. Yep. Um, and that allowed us to raise our first round. What about the market? So the market was small, but we had some compelling evidence that the market was gonna grow. And it has, yeah. um, which is yeah. great. That's, I mean, that's crucial. Being able to look back two years later and say, actually, that, that market has grown exponentially as we expected it would is, is a satisfying proof point. It's funny because there's a sort of out of sight, out of mind aspect still of drones a little bit now. So you're ask, asking people to sort of go beyond the... the, the visual line of, of sight. The visual line of sight. <laughs> um, a little bit. Which yeah, is, exactly right. Lay people just have no idea. But I think yeah. Goldman Sachs came out recently and said... 2020 drone industry, 100 billion. Yeah, and, and PwC have, have upped them and said 127 billion. Uh. You know, when you're looking for investors, you can find numbers anywhere. <laughs> um, the, the truth is there are, there are around 4,500 commercial drone piloting entities in the UK. So companies using drones, 4,500. So it's still a nascent market, um, but it's significantly larger than it was, and it's projected to, to grow quite quickly over the coming years as well. I think what, you know, one of the... the so that was our first round of investment when we were just two of us. We're now a team of 14. Mm. Um, 14 engineers, product guys, designers, salespeople. You know, we've, we've got we've got like bloody everyone in there. Well, the way we've built that team is by actually raising an additional round of funds. So we raised our, our pre-seed round back in 2016. We raised our seed round more recently with some really, really fantastic investors from London, uh, New York, Silicon Valley, Germany. Oh. Um, and that round was actually based on a much, much larger vision. So what we've realized by launching this app uh, and by demonstrating that you can achieve quite rapid growth in an emerging market by building revolutionary technology that uses risk analysis to intelligently price and sell insurance is that um, what we've demonstrated that that technology has allowed us to grow very quickly in this space. And now we're looking to actually expand that technology to new industries entirely. So this is the kind of the, the, the much bigger vision at Flock is that technology we've built works in the drone industry and it can work elsewhere too. So we're now starting to work with and, and reach out to and receive inbound interest from some of the world's largest insurance companies who have mm. seen what we've done in the drone industry and have said, I wonder if we can achieve that in our industry too. Um, so when we raised our seed round, we brought in very deliberately some of the leading insure tech investors. So that's Anthemis is our lead, um, very well-known insure tech investor. They go quite deep in the insure tech and the fintech spaces, plug and play from Silicon Valley, mm. um, who are backed by some of the world's largest insurers and work very closely with them. Uh, Mashmire Group out in Germany, very similar outfit. The reason these guys um, saw the value in what we're doing is because they realize it solved a problem far bigger than drone insurance. Does your insurance product envisage a world where it works backwards to understand me, the client, 
say if I have 40 successful drone flights and generally I'm a fairly conscientious individual um, who does who takes like low risk routes where possible doesn't fly on rainy days can you start to calculate a, a risk profile for me on which to to offer let's say other forms of tangible insurance so I will go as far as to say we can certainly generate a risk profile for you in the drone industry, um, yep. and we do do that for our pilots. We can understand what kind of flights they've flown, um, and it's, it's more interesting than just they flew 40 flights and didn't have a claim. It's they flew 40 flights in the rain and didn't have a claim in the rain. Therefore, yeah. if they fly another flight in the rain, is there something else we can infer mm. about how safe they might be during that flight compared to someone who's never flown in the rain? So you get the the high fidelity nature of the data that we collect allows us to learn an enormous amount about our customers, way more than a traditional insurance company can learn. Which is the next industry most likely that you'd expect to see your model of insurance working for? So when you say our model of insurance, do you mean our insurance or do you mean pay-as-you-go insurance? I'm in yours. Yeah. Okay, so so um, I can't give too much away okay. in this space for obvious reasons, yeah. but um, we've been working with some relatively large insurers across a variety of spaces to understand how we might commercialise our technology in their space. Um, an example, which I'm happy to talk about, is aviation. Yeah. Um, the when we assess a new industry, we always we take quite a strategic approach to it. We try to understand the relevant adjacencies of our technology to this new industry. Aviation is an interesting example. Many of the data sets are similar. Hyperlocal weather conditions, locations of airports. The customers are quite similar. Often mm -hmm. they're individuals flying for fun or they're small, medium-sized businesses. The regulator is the same, the Civil Aviation Authority. So, we, so those are some of the core pillars of what makes our technology go data, customers, regulators. And those three things are actually quite comparable between drones and general aviation, so you know, flying small planes. Um, so that's a, that's a particularly interesting one for us to explore down the line. Mm. How do you decide that you've got to a point where you're happy with the number of variables you're associating with a given outcome? And how often, you know, because it, I guess now you've seen so many drone flights, you, you're probably reasonably content that you can price it accordingly. Um, but I imagine that wasn't the case when you first started. So we take a it's never perfect mentality when it comes to pricing and when it comes to data. There's always more data you can suck into the platform to make your pricing more accurate. There's always more data you can collect from your customers and you can always fly more flights until you're 100% confident. Mm. Um, so that's the mentality we take. At the same time, we want to produce a product and offer a product to our users that's actually useful and that they can use. So we don't want to totally overwhelm them, which mm. is something that a lot of companies make that mistake. They add far too much data, they provide far too much insight and end up confusing their customer. What we did is we built our minimum viable algorithms to some extent, and then we went through a very extensive process of due diligence with Allianz, our insurance partner. Allianz have been in the aviation space for 100 years. They understand risk better than pretty much anyone, and they effectively audited our algorithms to make sure that what we had built was sensible. Now, since actually getting the sign-off launching the product, our algorithms have evolved quite dramatically over time, but the truth is they're always evolving. They're never going to be perfect. Even if we get them as good as they can possibly be, things change over time. The industry evolves, and so we're constantly chasing and playing catch-up with the industry to make sure that our algorithms make sense. Yeah, because I think it, it's conceptually quite a difficult problem to solve, and I presume your academic thesis went a long way to making you guys the first mover advantage in a respective space. Um, what I also think is quite nice is the insurance industry is quite unique to the UK, and it's nice that we're creating a company that's getting picked up by America 
for its own specific use cases. So I think maybe that's a testimony that the UK market is finding a bit of maturation and specific areas we're good at. I imagine our healthcare system is exceptionally burdened and we're also, uh, technology we spin out of the NHS will be quite good yeah. at being highly competitive on a global stage. Yeah, I agree. I think the UK insure tech scene is going to be one of the big stories of the next 10 years in the same way that the UK fintech scene has been one of the big stories of the last 10 years. Mm. The insurance industry is in desperate need of a revolution. Everybody hates insurance. It's boring. It's painful. It's not a friendly digital experience whatsoever. People feel cheated. People feel like they're not paying what they should be paying. They don't understand the products that they're buying. It's overly legal. All of that needs to change. In the same way that we've seen the rise of Monzo and Revolut, we will see the rise of equivalent companies in the insurance space because people have had enough. And there is, there is technology now that can solve all of these problems, which is exactly what we're attempting to do at Flock, right? We're trying to build the insurance company of the future that is fair, that is transparent, that leverages real-time data and technology to make, ultimately, a beautiful, easy, simple experience for the person actually buying that insurance. We also want to go one step further than that, our much broader vision is to integrate insurance so that it's completely seamless and invisible with day-to-day -day life. Why should you have to spend hours purchasing insurance policies? Insurance policies should understand, insurers should understand you mm. and that, that those insurance policies should be seamlessly integrated to your into your lifestyle, whatever it is that you're doing. You shouldn't have to purchase drone insurance. That drone insurance should automatically be activated as soon as your drone leaves the ground. That's where we want to take this. Can I understand something about the commercial drone operations at the moment? Um, let's say I'm an infrastructure company and I would like inspections done on my wind turbines. Do I, the company, pay uh, on a contract somebody to come on site and start doing that? Is there one person who owns all the drones who then goes and does all the inspections? Or does, does a big energy company buy their own drone team? My answer is actually a bit of both. So historically, what will happen is these small kind of one-man band companies will jump on a platform which allows them to get booked quite easily. One of those platforms is actually on Dragon's Den recently, Drone Safe Register. Um, or they'll simply make a website and, you know, a company that needs a drone pilot to go and do an inspection will find their website and will book them in, bring them in effectively as a freelancer to come in and, and do the work. What we're seeing now is this transition towards what I was explaining earlier, this kind of enterprise play, mm. whereby larger companies are actually bringing drone teams in-house because they realize the continued long-term benefits of having drone pilots on tap when they need them. Will the pilots lose their jobs as the drones are given more and more autonomy to carry out their own missions? Mm. <laughs> yes. Very yes, good so. question. <laughs> right, potentially. Um, my, so my thoughts on this are that down the line, um, I won't put an exact number on this, but down the line, commercial drone flights will be predominantly driven by software rather than by humans. Humans will take a more, more of an oversight position and these drones will be flying themselves. Interesting. This is Homer Simpson sat in his office eating donuts. <laughs> well, well, the machine, the busy, the busy little competent machines do all the hard work. Well, I yeah. just think there's a thing where we hope that there's technological innovation, and the, and the real hope I think of humanity is that then an, an industry fosters around that and it creates new jobs. And so I guess what I'm trying to work out is, will this cause a boom in jobs, or is it just going to leapfrog again and they'll just be operating almost autonomously? I mean, maybe, as you say, the um, the air traffic controller for the drones maybe a job or something like that and the presumably that would be so complicated that it's going to be, have to be a machine 
processing all the data to, to track be a software the, yeah mm. we're a but, very but very clever man yeah woman. i mean this debate is not confined to the drone industry no I mean, of course well there are three million people in the u.s who make their livelihoods by driving the trucks, in some capacity. yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a you know that's an even bigger question what yeah. happens to these three million people nearly one percent of the u.s population but you're the like almost the r&d i think that's why it works so well with the insurance industries they could sort of reskin and reevaluate the model around something new uncharted and exciting that didn't have uh, a classification for it so you almost become the thought experiment where we can start to ask these questions because it's quite difficult around ai because you're dealing with software it's often something you can't see drones are so um visible that that we have a different understanding of how they impact our lives and how we don't want them to impact our lives mm. potentially same with self-driving cars i think um but maybe even less so with self-driving cars because i think we may just still want to carry on driving cars for other reasons i mean nobody wants to just drive a drone <laughs> well a over a hundred thousand people do in the uk for fun right no, no i mean like like literally pilot a small light <laughs> aircraft to deliver goods it's yeah. not like we were replacing those kind of you're, jobs you're it's, right it's, you're right so so amazon for example it was relatively recently announced that they can now fly 100 drones with a single operator in charge of those 100 drones he and he just gets signals back trying to tell him where everyone is at the time because yeah so that's the, so Amazon are permitted by the CAA to have a single individual with 100 active drones in the sky under that person's control. Because those drones are piloted by software, which is far more intelligent and uh, far less prone to error or tiredness or drunkness than a human being. Yeah. Very, very comparable to the autonomous vehicle space. It was funny because we're so less forgiving of any errors that befall technology. So if one in 100 of those drones has a problem, we always kick up a fuss and then go back to sort of how can we fix this and stop this is as abhorrent but actually it's still as you say many many orders magnitude more efficient than a human would be yeah and it's, it's and you know drawing another parallel with autonomous cars it's exactly what happened when when tesla and uber actually have, have experienced crashes specifically fatal crashes in the automotive space there's a collective arm hurling in the air of this needs to be banned, this doesn't work, we need to change regulations so that autonomous vehicles aren't on our roads. But if you actually look at the data, autonomous vehicles are much safer. already mm. already safer than vehicles driven by human beings. And that's at the, you know, this is version one of what we expect to see on, the, on our roads in the next few years, and it's only gonna get increasingly safe. It needs one software patch, and then the whole fleet can drive better, you know, immediately, mm. it's, and, and it's like, computers playing chess it's yeah. and, and these things learn from each other so yes. so a single car experiencing a specific circumstance somewhere on one side of the US uh, will learn from its experience and will pass those learnings up to the cloud and that will be distributed across the entire fleet and all of the other cars in that fleet will learn from the experience of that one car that's had a bad time and the exact same thing will apply to drones it really will be a flock well, it's, oh. a, it's hive <laughs> intelligence isn't it really that's what we're, we're dealing with Elon Musk sort of was talking about his cybernetic collectives of social media and stuff like that but um that is why i guess i'm trying to understand where the where the real control is in the whether it's the hardware manufacturers whether it's the regulators whether it's the software providers um and to some degree if some countries are the ones responsible for producing all the drones that that get sent out um they define the hardware standard for instance correct and you're alluding to a concept or very loosely to a concept um, known as surface area, to do with mm. the potential risks caused by a technology or by an AI. The more drones you have connected to one system, 
the or the more cars you have connected to one system, the greater the potential impact of a, for example, a negative hack could have in terms of the surface area that that system has on over the world, right? So while there, whilst there are massive benefits of this kind of hive mind idea, mm. whereby one drone in Arizona experiencing a specific weather condition can teach in a matter of milliseconds another drone in London, the corollary of that, the, the you know the flip side of that, is that a single system experiencing a seriously True. malevolent actor can end up having a dramatically larger impact than each individual drone acting in a malevolent way in isolation. Um, it's interesting you mentioned this, you know, you alluded to DJI, I think, when you were talking about, you know, if all of the drones were manufactured in one country. So, well, it, it is the case that around 75, 80% of drones are DJI drones, and that's a Chinese company. And there have been massive concerns, especially in the US, around the privacy and security of the data that's being collected by these drones. Like explain the missiling. Well, <laughs> well, haven't they advised people not to buy um, exactly Huawei right. phones? Well, they've actually gone one step further in the drone space in the US. They, the US military completely stopped purchasing any DJI products as a result of their fear that DJI were mishandling the data that was coming back through these products, and that fear may well have been well-founded. Mm. That's ex Well, can we take it a step further now and take it to the policing by drones and the policing of drones by drones? So is it reasonable? Yeah, I know, sorry. Um, remember I read it in my notes, it's like, what, what are the, the things that are gonna change? And let's say an urban use case, I could send a police officer to the scene of a crime, or I could send a small quadcopter to just go and, and investigate that house disturbance, which can get there quicker. Um, it's produced by the police with their software package, so assuming it can be embedded with, with safety and, and those principles. Because I can't see some use cases in the urban environment, it's not like, where they they scan fields and just do these big ordnance surveys and stuff like that but security could be one um in rural areas i could see border policing done by drones if you don't want people to come over borders you it's have already soft borders. being done yeah yeah exactly where you might just try to catch people it, it, you know rather than building a wall um you can just have, have drones policing a certain mm -hmm. territory um so well firstly you said it's already been done so what what is being done um in so the well let's talk about the blue light sector right okay. so emergency services are already using drones here in the uk we work with some of them and we're in quite close contact with a bunch of them um they're using drones for really great purposes it's, it, it's very easy to focus on the negative side of the drone yep. industry and there are some negatives in the drone industry as with any industry but these things are being used to save lives they're saving people in the water that's already there's tons of really interesting news stories about how that's being done um, fire services starting to use drones to better understand the situation without having to put someone in there and potentially risk their lives. There are drones now that can put out fires. So, I mean, these things are being used for a whole range of use cases, for often humanitarian use cases as well. Um, but then say like with a, with a, the rural border policing, mm -hmm. is that happening? It's happening. Any particular countries? I mean, well, um, I'm pretty sure there are tons of drones being used out in the US to patrol the US border. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. I can't tell you exactly which drones they are. I don't know. Because also, then you have the first responder question, don't you? As you say, you've got them putting out fires. It seems a lot of the current use cases involve um, visibility, lines of sight reporting back. Um, so once you see somebody go over the border, where does the line go where you can say, I can inform a human or I can intercept them now and tell them that they've, they've been caught? And then at what point do you say, well, actually... I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a whole 
a whole new conversation is you, you're alluding to kind of autonomous weapons potentially. Well, didn't the even? Russians talk about the Fedor bots? Was that the one that they were scaring everybody with that they were developing some robot? I mean, I don't. It's funny because you look back at Terminator as an example and you think, well, it's not going to be land based walking robots that will cause problems. But air, superi- air superiority has always been something that's, you know, afforded a country a massive mm-hmm. advantage. Um, so it's just where, where we draw the lines. Different countries obviously have different, you know, if it was North Korea do they want to stop somebody from, do they do want to stop people coming across the borders so they might be you know for, quite ferocious in their their response just just as an FYI you cannot ensure military robots on the flock cover app no <laughs> fine <laughs> we, we we have deliberately stayed quite far from the military sector specifically from a PR perspective as well it's it's one of the reasons that the drone industry gets such a, a tough Mm. rep is that it's really it started in the military um, we've been going so for 100 years in the in the in the yeah you said that earlier what did, you, yeah. what did you mean in, in like uavs i guess it was like actually just flying a remote control plane okay to, to wreck an area um because they've got that really high altitude plane don't they that goes exceptionally quick no not blackbird it goes like four thousand. Mm. Oh, they control it with an, an xbox controller really as well, not 100 years ago, though. Um, <laughs> anyway, before we get too bogged down in this, I'm, I'm slightly conscious that uh, Time's winged drone is, is hurrying on. Um, so we, we, we will... John Drone. <laughs> we will um, we'll change tack slightly um, because you, me- you mentioned earlier about the when you were starting out about the noise you tried to make. That was one of the key mm. things, and obviously that has worked out for you. Um, and one of the things that you obviously made a noise about was meeting Elon Musk and I thought mm. we couldn't interview you without mentioning him <laughs> and actually his recent did I make a noise about his that? recent performance and I think you did didn't you possibly we won't make you smoke a joint like <laughs> air, apparently that doesn't go down very well oh. <laughs> why are we talking about it <laughs> come on guys you can have your coffee with 12 sugars however <laughs> you did meet him didn't you yeah so so I, I met Elon Musk actually before not only starting this company but before graduating from Oxford which is my undergrad so he actually came to the Sheldonian Theatre to talk about his vision for the future of society. Mm. It was a very unstructured talk about everything from SpaceX to Tesla. And he even mentioned, I think it was the first time he ever mentioned that he wanted to build a supersonic electronic jet, which is something that he's now touched up on again recently and has actually mentioned again. He went very quiet on that. So this was back in probably 2013, 2014. He gave this talk at the Sheldonian um, and afterwards, there was a kind of drinks reception downstairs. Um, I pretended to be a photographer, got access to that drinks mm-hmm. reception because he was my genuine hero at this point. He, he wasn't as famous back then as he is now, but yep. he was still doing some pretty incredible things. Um, so I went and had a, yeah, had a fantastic chat with him and Richard Dawkins, actually. It was one of the more bizarre conversations I've had. We, we ended up just drinking beer together for, I don't know, maybe... It felt like hours, but it was probably just a few minutes. Was it obliged <laughs> to be reasonably high-level discussion, or, or did they down tools and just talk about nothing in particular? Um, Elon Musk was talking about his electronic jet <laughs> and and why he's not going to start a company that will crack nuclear fusion. So it was it was still relatively highbrow. Relatively highbrow. <laughs> Take some photos now, then shall I? Which is exactly what I did. Um, yeah, he has gone quiet on that because he he was identifying that he's well, he's quite busy. He's well, apparently. Smoking um, joints on podcasts, yeah, yeah, and running multi-billion-dollar companies. Yeah. Well, he, I think he I was, think he did mention the jet that could 
take off vertically like yeah. a, yeah. a commercial he said, he said he needed the height to basically create the fuel efficiency so he's quite keen on getting the, the takeoff part done by electricity but he said that it didn't quell his sort of existential fear over our need to get off um fossil fuels climate change yeah. so he again he's, he's right parked there. it but he and he was talking about um a recent update coming up with Neuralink. Uh, yeah he said that there was some news on the way but we don't know what that he sounds like he needs an update <laughs> yeah maybe he's, he's patching his software <laughs> And was that inspirational? Was it inspirational as you hope? Because I think we all um, sort of dream lightly of meeting Elon Musk and we hope that he, he stacks up to our expectations because we put a lot of expectations on him. So were you pleasantly surprised? Um, I was actually. I was, I was pleasantly surprised, not because he totally blew my mind from an academic perspective, but actually just because he's quite an ordinary bloke, mm. which, which was weirdly positively surprising for me that someone could be relatively normal, came across as humble, almost nervous, to be having a conversation in public and someone of that stature mm. um, and with such phenomenal achievements when you meet them is actually relatively down to earth. Because so I think he gets a lot of criticism, but I think there's a, I think we're trying, to, we're trying to ask him to have all the solutions to all things at all times. And even if he creates inspiration for other people to go and finish, fill in the gaps, other entrepreneurs take his uh, reusable rockets and think we can create a product around that. I think at least he's putting a flag in the sand too. That's exactly right. And I think I think that's all what Elon Musk's legacy will probably be. I, I doubt we'll look back in 100 years and say, thank goodness for Tesla because Tesla went on to be the single largest automotive manufacturer in history and completely took us off fossil fuels in the automotive space. Mm. And thank goodness for, take, for SpaceX because SpaceX is what enabled on its own, you know, cheap reusable rockets. I think we'll look back and say exactly what you've said there was a flag in the sand there. They, he, he demonstrates the art of the possible and that inspires an entirely new generation of entrepreneurs, engineers, and it really lights a fire underneath existing competitors who have gone on to say, actually, maybe we can do better as well. Um, I, think, I think the rise of Tesla has coincided. There's a causation as to why there's a massive, massive influx of, of capital and uh, resource into electric cars. I would say the same with SpaceX. Um, I mean, Blue Origins is a really interesting one. Mm. Jeff Bezos's company is, is is mimicking SpaceX to some extent. They're just a couple of years behind. Mm. I think they're a really interesting company to watch. Actually. I wondered if they were going to go down the delivery route and if Jeff Bezos could get relanding payloads to go skip into um, some kind of low orbit that he could maybe deliver parcels to Australia very, very quickly. Or, or he might use it for some kind of Amazon-related purposes rather than sort of the Elon Musk going to, to Mars or circumventing the um, the moon. Very, very possible. Um, yeah. If you say so Jeff Bezos has, has, well, as per his talks anyway, has kind of been fascinated with space travel since he was very young. Mm. And I think he actually does have a similar ambition to Musk of becoming an interplanetary species. I think that's probably his broader vision there. Mm. But if the, you know, if the stepping stone to get there is commercializing technology with a viable business plan and that happens to be, uh, you know, low earth orbit transportation, then possible. Well, I had an, um, related to one of Elon's companies because I can't remember the name of the small satellite network he wants to produce to create um, internet. For yeah. Is it Starnet or something like that? I can't remember what it's called. But then it made me think about drones and basically the race to the sky because you kind of get supremacy if you um, control communication networks. If you have satellite observation, you you then go above the drones and whoever's in control of that landscape then has the power to to do God knows what. So yeah, and, and Facebook made a good go of it. Um, I think it was the Aquila program was the Facebook drone program where they went, when they basically wanted to throw these things up mm. to 60,000 feet plus and build 
this communication network in the sky. Um, they did some test runs. They had a phenomenal team working on it. They had some massive ambitions with it, but unfortunately they canned the entire project. So they say, well, we can't <laughs> see 60,000 feet in the sky. Yeah, oh, they've all gone. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's just so up for grabs. And so when, it's funny because there's been a lot of uninspiring companies in the UK um, at the moment. I just think um, there's a lot of AI for the sake of being AI. And as you pointed out earlier, there's a lot of blockchain for the sake of being blockchain. But I do think there's some kind of technologies that shunt a whole different landscape together. I think what drone, are some of the ones that you're thinking of? Um, I think there'll be some interesting agrotech industries mm -hmm. um, that probably will come via some kind of... Well, a friend of mine in Cambridge actually runs... Uh, <laughs> he made a strawberry picking robot. But he's going to be division. But yeah, it's again supplanting workers. But those kind of things afford sort of different ways of doing things. Um, I'm not so psyched about self-driving cars. I actually find drones now I've looked into it more interesting because I think they'll be more easily and quickly deployed. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think they will cause stepwise changes afterwards in terms of how we, we behave, how things are... You know how society starts to construct itself. Yeah, um, I think I think things become so. Just to just to pick up on two of those concepts quickly, I think things become very interesting when you combine drones and self-driving cars. So right. I'm talking about flying cars, which fly themselves, personal transportation drones, with vertical takeoff and landing, fully electronic, and a embedded, sensible traffic management system. This stuff isn't that far off. I mean, people people laugh when you say the words flying cars because mm. it's it's one of those concepts that's just constantly misused and banded around and it's almost just become comical. But it was done so badly because it was always the James Bond propeller hybrid wing car and it, it should always made sense for it to be a quadcopter. I think those seem well, so dangerous. We're, we're getting there. We're mm. getting there. And it's it's no longer the stuff of science fiction. I mean, Uber are pioneering this with their Elevate program. They've put on a monstrous, well, now multiple monstrous conferences in the US and have brought together some of the world's leading players in this space. NASA's in there, Google's in there, really, really looking quite seriously at how we can start making vertical takeoff and landing personal transportation a reality in urban areas and i don't think it's that far off at all what's your prediction on the time scale and i'll take this as your prediction you for the future you can write it down you can write it down i actually i gave a ted talk quite recently and it's a small ted talk and i put on the screen that in 2035 mm -hmm. i expect to be taking a personal transportation drone to work affordably or you expect to be a billionaire um, <laughs> ideally it would be affordable and i'll also be a billionaire. <laughs> just just doing laps of mars and the moon at leisure um at this point because you've got a call in in 10 less, minutes less than, ten, less than 10 minutes so we'll just move to the, the quickfire questions to wrap up would you like me to take your prediction of flying cars in transportation cars into, by 2035 as your prediction for the future or do you have another one that you can blow my mind with? I've got lots of predictions do for it. the future. Do it. Give me one more. I mean, okay, that that's one. Yeah. If you want to write one down. Okay, I've written that down. Do it. It's engraved. I've got like a sub-episode where we can listen to all of them. Um, so that's definitely one of them. I think that autonomous vehicles, autonomous cars will happen sooner than we think. Um, you know, partially due to the exposure I've had to the industry over the last two yeah. years, mm -hmm. partially due to the papers I was writing at Cambridge on this topic, and partially due to, well, mainly due to the fantastic work that's being done mm -hmm. by the companies that are pioneering in this space, and the regulators who are actually taking a surprisingly positive view. I wouldn't be surprised if autonomous vehicles are prolific on our roads here in the UK in the next 10 years. Towns before um, countryside? 
I think both. Right. I think both. I think there are massive, massive benefits to having autonomous vehicles in both cities and in. And in do you think that will start with areas. commercial fleets first, e.g., lorries, trucks, um, removal vans, ahead of personal transportation? Um, I, I am loath to say it, but I actually think it will be personal transportation first. Really? The reason being, programs like Waymo out in the US are mm. already doing this. They're already taking hundreds of people from A to B safely, securely, with no driver. So I, I actually expect it will be the major tech companies working closely with the regulators, which I think is a shift we're seeing, is that tech companies are starting to be much more proactive in working with regulators rather than against them. Mm-hmm. I think it will be those tech companies that pioneer autonomous vehicles in cities and outside of cities as well. Mm. Um, and what about a startup book, resource or tool that has helped you on your way? Mm. So book, I mean, I'm going to avoid the classic pitfall of saying something like the lean startup mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or zero to one, mm-hmm. um, which well, you're both laughing. I imagine someone said that. They've, they've all been yeah. said. Okay, I'm definitely not going to say this, although they are great. <laughs> um, what I would say is, okay, so there are two that spring to mind. Um, which is cheating, but I will say both. So the first is the hard thing about hard things, um, which is, yes, Mm -hmm. really great book, mainly because it just gives examples of some of the truly horrendous roller coaster scenarios that happen when you're starting a company, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't put you off. Um, It tells it in such an exciting way that it almost makes the challenge sound fun um, and the challenge is immense. So I would definitely recommend reading that. It's just a very engaging read and it paints a phenomenal picture about the highs and lows of, of starting and building a company. The other one is a book that I'm actually currently reading, which is why it's on my mind, mm-hmm. which is 12 Rules for Life by Jordan, Jordan Peterson. Peterson. Uh, hmm. um, I, I wouldn't say it's tradition. It's definitely not traditionally seen as a startup book, but I think it just helps with having a relatively stable positive mentality and outlook for life which you know one of the effects of that is that it makes it much more bearable to run a company yeah um and and it helps you to genuinely understand how to kind of establish order reduce the amount of randomness and chaos in your life from a personal level and that is actually very helpful when you when you're running a company well i think there's a sense of um burnout being a badge of honor which i don't think really helps anybody so i think um yeah keeping in control of your own house before you go out and try and solve the problems you're solving is that's one of the rules yeah really the, criti- the criticisms leveled at that are always that um they're all cliches but then his response is that um if you can give a reason for why for why you should abide by certain cliches it's you know they've become cliches for a reason mm. well then he calls them archetypes there's the sort of a mode yeah of, oh, we yeah. have some serious jordan peterson fans in this room this I, is great i lived with the jordan peterson fan for a time i think i know <laughs> Yeah, I think you probably do. Um, okay, and 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 uh, we've four minutes. And uh, we've got four minutes. Okay, what about a book or something where people can get up to speed on the drone industry and the and the future of drones and cities? Oh and wow! Your academic paper is that available to be read? <laughs> we, honestly, go on go on our website flockcover.com and go on our blog because we blog about loads of stuff. We blog okay. about the drone industry. We blog about the future of insurance. We also blog about the culture and the, the environment that we're building as a company and how we train our engineers and loads of interesting stuff. So feel free to check that out. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's necessarily the best resource for learning about the future of the drone industry. That would probably be a report written by PwC. Right. Uh, and but don't, you, don't, you don't want to read PwC reports. Not particularly. No, I thought not. Um, and, and finally, um, 
depressingly, we're the same age. Um, and uh, so <laughs> what, I'm even older. And so, so what would your advice be to, to, to young, aspiring CEOs and founders? Um, I could talk about this all day. Sadly, we've got a couple of minutes. My main piece of advice would be to be open in in as many areas of your life as possible. We found, and we've, we have found, and we continue to find, that this mentality that seems to be quite pervasive of if you have an idea, keep it to yourself, don't tell anyone, they'll go out and steal it. For the love of God, don't write it down. Is, is just wrong. Not, mm. not just on an emotional level, it's quite difficult to, to live your life like that. But even just mathematically speaking, I genuinely think that there is a correlation between openness and success. Talking about your ideas, getting feedback as early as possible, being open about what your innovations are, in air quotes, um, and asking the industry to give you feedback even potential competitors has been very very effective for us as a company and you can see that on our website you can see it in the talks that we give um, whether that's on stage or online we talk openly about the way that our technology works about what our visions are for the future the downside is that if there's a competitor out there that's really really trying to screw you then they have access to that talk mm. right but if your competitor can watch a video of you talk about your technology and go out and do it better than you then it probably wasn't a mind-blowing idea in the first place and you probably didn't have the best team in place to mm. make it happen but what will happen if you're open about your technology and open about your vision is that you'll get great feedback from people who matter because they'll take interest and they'll call you or they'll text you or they'll email you and you attract people who are interested in it. You'll attract the right kind of people who will come and they'll say, hey, I can help you out mm. or hey, I want a job or hey, I saw that talk and I want to be your intern. These are all things that have happened to us just in the last year. So we're, we're very, very open about what we do. And that's been the case right from when we were two people working in a hot desk all the way through to now when we're, we're still a small team of 14, but we're doubling the size of that team in the next year. We are deliberately transparent about the way that we work, what we build and what the future looks like. Mm. And with that openness in mind, we like to end these podcasts by asking you if there's anything you'd like to ask our audience. Ooh. One, you're hiring. Yes. I saw on your LinkedIn. This is a good question. So we are always hiring yep. at Flock. Um, we're hiring engineers, we're hiring designers, um, and there are live roles going uh, going up on the site almost every week. So one request I have for the community is take a look at them. Mm -hmm. And if you know anyone exceptional who you think would like to work at a company like this one, mm -hmm. uh, send them my way. Sounds good. Ed, it's been brilliant. Yeah, I'm desperately sad we're getting cut so short, but we've done it just in time for your phone call. Thank you so much for coming on. Good timing and thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, audioed at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.